Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts one more time as we come before God's word, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is truth. Father, we thank you also that it is living and powerful, and that your word has the power to change us, to change the way we think. Lord, to help us to understand the things that you want us to know. And Lord, we just pray now that we would have open hearts and Lord ears that are ready to to listen and receive from you. Uh, Lord, just speak to us, we pray. Father, bless my words. And Lord, may together, as a fellowship, we grow in knowledge and grace as we come humbly before your word now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're carrying on our study through the Bible in a year. It's kind of a fairly ambitious project, but we're up to um, the closing session that we're going to spend in the Torah. Uh, the Torah being the first five books of the Bible, uh, the, b- the books of Moses. Years ago there was uh, doubt and contention and all sorts about whether Moses was really the author and there was something that came to light called uh, um, the um, documentary hypothesis. There you go. Um, I'd buried it so far deep in my mind because it's uh, so relevant now. And people were suggesting that various other authors had got together and conspired. And uh, you know, If you've read scripture, you know that this is not the work of man. There is no way a man could have put together the things that we see. And yes, Moses was used as a penman to record these things. But as you study the Bible, you realize that this book is supernatural in origin. And the Torah uh, is just an incredible work. We were looking last session at the first seven chapters of this book. And we're going to try and see if we can round out the book now. Um, Henrietta Mears, in the, the commentary, What the Bible is All About, says this regarding this book. Everything depends on obedience. Life itself Possession of the promised land, victory over foes, prosperity and happiness. We find this book teaches the inflexibility of the law. Thou shalt and thou shalt not occur over and over again. A blessing if you obey and a curse if you will not obey. I read this quote last time as well from Alan Redpath. He says, I believe it is not more truth we need to know primarily, but 100% obedience to what we know already. You know, for many people who have read the Bible, it's not that they necessarily need to understand more, but that we obey that which we have already read. We've seen in the previous chapters we've looked at that this book is effectively three separate sermons that Moses gives. The first one as we look in last time, the first four chapters, Moses reviews their journey. How the children of Israel left Egypt, how they wandered, and well, they got to Mount Sinai, and then they came from there up to the Promised Land. And then following that, because they refused to go in, because of this unbelief, because they were fearful, because of the inhabitants of the land, well, they then spent 38 years wandering in the wilderness. And then from chapter 5 onwards, and this is kind of part way where we left it last time, Moses is restating the laws and the ordinances. So we've got the civil laws and the religious laws that are being laid down now. And as we start in chapter 
Um, uh, really from chapter 5 onwards uh, we get an overview of the Ten Commandments uh, as Moses is just reiterating these things again and I I just want to read you this we did read it last time but I think it's so wonderful this is from the Westminster Confession from 1646 regarding just the first commandment they say the duties required in the first commandment are the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify him accordingly by thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honouring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, fearing of him, believing him, trusting, hoping, delighting, rejoicing in him, being zealous for him, calling upon him, giving all praise and thanks and yielding all obedience and submission to him with the whole man, being careful in all things to please him and sorrowful when in anything he is offended and walking humbly with him. Now do we love our God like that? You know, that's what God demands of us. If we're to follow and serve him, if we're to be disciples, that's the way we should be. You know, the, the, the commands, the Ten Commandments, we're actually told by Paul in the book of Timothy that they're not given for the righteous but for the unrighteous. There's a, spe- a specific purpose for the law and that is to show that we cannot meet God's standard on our own. No human being could have attained to that list of things. And when we look at the Ten Commandments, the things that are listed, we can't make that standard. And that's the whole point. God wants us to come to that place where we realise, actually, none of us deserve to go to heaven. None of us will ever do anything good enough to warrant spending an eternity with a holy God. And that's the point. We can't do it. And that's why God sent his son... God manifest in the flesh to come to pay for our sin. By dying on the cross, Jesus paid for everything that we could ever think, do, or anything. I love this quote also from Alan Redpath. He said, The severity of the law of God is the most wonderful expression of his love. You see, our God is set upon our perfection. We are saved that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. He wants to make us like him. And if he excused sin or condoned it, it would be absolutely impossible to fulfill that objective. That was wonderful. Let's uh, carry on there. So we're going to pick up in chapter 8 this morning. In chapter 8, we read there, uh, just verse 2, it says, You shall remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years. So this is a little bit of what we've just recapped in the previous chapters. In the wilderness to humble thee. So this is the why God allowed these things to happen. To humble thee. To prove thee. To know what was in thine heart. Whether thou would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger. And fed thee with manna which thou knewest not. Neither did thy fathers know. That he might make thee know that man does not live by bread only. But by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord does man live. Now you recognize that quote, of course, because Jesus quotes this verse when Satan is tempting him in the New Testament in the wilderness. And Jesus quotes scripture. Such a good thing to do, to have scripture so embedded in our memories that when occasion requires, we can just quote the word of God. David says in Psalm 119, Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
It's a great practice to learn and meditate on God's word, to understand it. And Jesus, as I say, quotes this verse, that we don't live by the things that we eat only. That doesn't make us alive. Yes, it helps the body, but we are made up of three component parts, body, soul, and spirit. The body part we understand, and we spend a lot of time and attention on that. Most of us say, oh, I, you know, I'm not bothered. To, you know, and the, but you know, you, if we took a group photograph this morning and we would put it up on the screen, I guarantee you the first person you look for would be you. You know, we do care about our bodies. Of course we do. And the other parts of us, though, are equally as important. We, we've got our soul. That's who we are. And our spirit. That's the, the part that God has got some commentators to refer to it or, or uh, liken it to our conscience. It's that part of us that has this knowledge of right and wrong. You know, we all have that inbuilt knowledge of what is right and what is wrong. I was talking to somebody this week who was talking about, you know, how do you, you know, get rid of feelings of guilt for things you've done wrong. And it's the conscience. And the conscience won't let you go. But of course, the blood of Jesus that was shed for us on the cross purges us of all sin. And we can come to a place where there is no guilt. It's incredible. So we don't just live by bread alone, but every word of God. That's what makes us truly alive. Alive in our spirit. And the spirit is that um, God-focusing part of us. And of course, for human beings, for most human beings, our spirit is dead. We're spiritually dead. But when we become born again, the term the Bible uses... We start a new life because God puts his spirit within us. Our own spirit, we're spiritually dead. The Bible talks about us being dead in trespasses and sins. But when we're born again, God puts his spirit, not just to create a new one, gives us his spirit within us. And suddenly we become alive. And that's why we use this term, born again. Because literally, spiritually, we have been born again. It's a new life that effectively started. Chapter 9 of Deuteronomy, we carry on. The first verse says, Hear, O Israel, thou art to pass over this Jordan, the Jordan River, this day to go in to possess nations greater and mightier than thyself, cities great and fenced up to heaven. And we hold it just reminded again of the reason that God was allowing Israel to take this land. Bear in mind, it was God's land. And Satan had moved these other nations in there to try and destroy the nation of Israel. He says, A people great and tall, the children of the Anakims, who thou knewest, who thou knowest, and of whom thou hast heard say, who could stand before the children of Anak? We've been looking, we spent a lot of time over the last um, couple of months, really, because we've been going through scripture, referencing the event that took place that led to the flood, with these fallen angels taking the women of the earth and their offspring being produced, which were these giant tribes, of whom much folklore and legend is told. And of course a lot of it is folklore and legend. But we do know the reality of what we're told in Scripture, that in this area there were giant tribes. And God used Israel, he used the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, even the Philistines, to get rid of these giant infestation from the land. And so God is saying now to Israel, they're to be given this land. But then God says to Israel, Speak not thou in thine heart after that the Lord thy God has cast them out from before thee, saying, For my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. And God reminds Israel, and he says, But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord does drive them out from before thee. 
Not for thy righteousness or for the uprightness of thine heart does thou go in to possess their land, but for the wickedness of these nations the Lord thy God does drive them out from before thee that he may perform the word which the Lord swore unto thy fathers Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. You see, God is a God that delights in keeping his promises. And he promised this land to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. As we move on chapter 9 through 11 verse 7 of chapter 9 Moses begins a review of their journeys from Egypt highlighting their failures it starts in verse 7 of chapter 9 remember and forget not well how important is that for us we were talking last week I believe about the communion why we have to remember this communion why we have to remember what Christ accomplished on the cross for us you know, and we mustn't let the lessons be wasted. We've all stumbled. We've all done things that we've looked back in our lives and think, I wish I hadn't have done that. And God effectively says to Israel, look back at those things. Think about them. Remember and forget not. And we're reminded of what took place at Horeb, at the base of Mount Sinai with the golden calf. At Terabeth, where this mixed multitude started lusting and it caused a problem for the whole nation. Those that were at the back of the camp, Remember? And then at Maessa, this was at Rephidim, where they cried out for water and they were questioning whether God was really going to provide for them and Moses strikes the rock there. And then at Kibrath Hatavar, the graves of lust, where they cried out, they were fed up with the manna, they wanted something other than that which God had provided for their sustenance. And then at Kadesh Barnea, which is where they refused to go into the promised land. So God reminds them through Moses of all of these things now. And sometimes it's good to remember, you know, God says regarding our sin, he will remember it no more. We were singing this morning the way that God will uh, separate our sin as far as the east is from the west. In God's eyes, our sin is gone. But it's good for us sometimes to remember those mistakes that we've made, the pain it caused so that we don't make the same mistakes. And even better still, if we can learn, as Paul suggests we should do in 1 Corinthians 10, that we can learn from others' mistakes, so that we don't go down those same roads. In Deuteronomy 11, to conclude that portion, we read, Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. This is very simple. A blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, and a curse if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. But turn aside out of the way which I command you this day, to go after other gods which you have not known. And it shall come to pass, when the Lord thy God has brought thee in unto the land, whither thou goest to possess it, that thou shalt put a blessing upon Mount Gerizim, and the curse upon Mount Ebal. So what's going to happen, and Moses is giving them instructions now, when they get into the land... Six of the tribes, six of the tribes of Israel were to go and stand on Mount Gerizim, which incidentally is a fruitful mountain. It brings forth all sorts of crops and all sorts of other things. And then on the other mountain, which sits opposite, on Mount Ebal, which is a barren mountain, very little grows on it, there's be Reuben, the tribe of Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebul, and Dan, Natalie. So they would separate. And on Mount Gerizim, they would shout and pronounce the blessings. On Mount Ebal, they would pronounce the curses to remind them of the promises that God had given them. In the middle you see here we have what is today, um, or it's, it's still, this town is still there to this day, but in scripture this is referred to as the town of Shechem. 
You may remember that's where Jesus comes and meets the woman at the well. And she asks about this mountain. Should we worship God on this mountain, the fruitful mountain, or in Jerusalem? And that's, that's what leads to that question. In chapter 12, we're reminded there, or God, again through Moses, reminds the nation that when they get into land, and it's always when, this is not if, God is going to fulfill his promises. When they get into the land, you go over Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God gives you to inherit. And when he gives you rest from all your enemies round about, so that you dwell in safety, then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. Neither shall you bring all that I command you, burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, the heath offerings of your hand, all the choice vows which you vow unto the Lord. So this is going to be the place where it becomes known as Shiloh. This place within the land where the tabernacle is, in a sense, to have its final resting place. Now, that's exactly what happens. They get into the land, Shiloh becomes this place that God says that's where you're to put the tabernacle. And that's where every year the tribes of Israel were to come up and bring their offerings and sacrifices. Eventually, during the time of uh, Samuel, and we'll get to that as we move forward as we go through the Bible, the Philistines came in and they stole, they took away all the produce of the land and everything else. They took the ark captive and they destroyed uh, the tabernacle. Uh, there was a Shiloh. And eventually, we find that Israel ended up moving the tabernacle, the tent, because of what was left or what was ever re- reconstructed after the Philistines had had their, their fun with it, um, ends up being moved by David finally to Jerusalem. But to start with, this is the place that God will uh, put in the land, and that's what this reference is in Deuteronomy 12. In Deuteronomy 13, we read there in the first verse, If there arise among you a prophet, uh, this is really incredible, or a dreamer of dreams, and gives thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass, whereof he spoke unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods, which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. And thou shalt hearken unto the words of that prophet, or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God proves you, to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. God is saying to the nation of Israel, if somebody comes along who claims to be a prophet, somebody who has dreams, and they give signs and wonders, and if those things, even if they come to pass, are you going to follow them? Are you just going to abandon the things that I have told you and follow after that individual? God says he will allow those things to prove people, to test them. You know, within the, the Christian church, there's a number of people that claim to be prophets. There's a number of people that claim to do wonderful signs and all sorts of other things and wonders. Are we going to follow after them? It's incredible. If you look at a lot of Christian television, as poor as it is, much of it, and you see countless numbers of people with no discernment just following after people that seemingly are prophesying and seemingly doing signs and wonders you know and even if they can be verified doesn't mean we abandon god's word god says he will allow those things to prove us to see really whether we're going to trust him or not really important scripture for us to take on board and understand in Deuteronomy 14, we get a review there of the dietary laws. We spent a lot of time going through looking at those. 
um, previously, so we're not going to go through that again now. In chapter 15, we get some laws about the poor that will be in the land and slaves and so on. One of the interesting things that comes out of that is that typically a slave, if they were Jewish, uh, so a member of the nation, uh, they were to serve for six years. In the seventh year, that individual was to go free. And we're told this in Deuteronomy 15, verse 16. And it shall be that if he says, say unto thee, I will not go away from thee, because he loves thee and thine house, because he is well with thee, then thou shalt take an awl and thrust it through his ear unto the door, and he shall be thy servant forever. So effectively, if a servant is saying, you know, it's the sixth year, the sixth year is completed, the seventh year, he's free to go. He says, no, I want to stay with my master, because this is the place I want to be. I enjoy working for you. I enjoy being in your presence. Then te- technically what's happening is he's put up the door of the house and he's having his ear pierced as a sign of ownership. And it's his declaration that I will be your servant forever. Paul uses exactly this idea in the New Testament. This is the, in the, the Hebrew, it's a doulos, but it's a bond slave. Somebody who is, through their own choice, committing themselves to another. As I say, a number of times, Paul opens his letters. Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, I was a slave. I was made free. I was a slave to sin. And I've been made free because Christ paid for my sin. I'm free to go. My eternity is secure in Christ. But I choose to follow Christ. I choose to stay with him. To serve him forever. Because where would be better than being with Jesus? The one that has died to save us, to give us eternal life. Where else could we go that would be better than that? And so Paul picks on this idea from Deuteronomy chapter 15. Chapter 16, we actually then get another review of the feasts of Israel. Again, we spend a little bit of time looking at those, so we'll kind of move on for now. Chapter 17, we get some laws for when they're going to be in the land. One interesting one that comes in verse 6 is that the mouth of two or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness... He shall not be put to death. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people. So thou shalt put evil away from among you. So the simple rule is that if somebody accuses somebody of a crime, then the witnesses who come forward to testify say, yes, that individual was guilty, if that's what they say, they're to be the first to put their hand against him to death, to cast a stone or whichever way the punishment was to be meted out interesting to note there were no prisons in ancient Israel they didn't need them they didn't have any prison system and it's interesting because this principle seems to be one it's a law that God himself seems to hold himself to this idea of two witnesses being present throughout scripture you can point to numerous examples in the book of Revelation we find we have two witnesses to testify on God's behalf that something yet to come in the future during the time of tribulation. At the resurrection, who witnessed the resurrection? Well, we know that the, the guards were not uh, particularly useful. The disciples, when they get to the tomb, Jesus was already alive. But do you remember there was a meeting that Jesus held, probably we believe on Mount Hermon, northern Israel. We refer to it as the Mount of Transfiguration. And two individuals show up, two men in 
white apparel, we're told, shining. Moses and Elijah. And then we find at the tomb, there's two men present. What were they doing there? There weren't angels. We're told there were two men. Dr. Luke makes that very clear. And then at the time of the ascension, there's two men standing there, witnessing again. God seems to use this idea. And then we have, in the book of Revelation, those two witnesses. And many believe them to be, again, Moses and Elijah. There's a rule also that many biblical commentators will adopt here, that before something can be considered a biblical doctrine or principle, there should be at least two or more scriptures that support. So if you're reading something you think, oh, that's interesting, you know, before you start to formulate an idea or a belief or doctrine from it, make sure it, con- it concurs with the rest of scripture. And it's a fairly good kind of rule of thumb to go by, that if you're um, going to start to you know, use it as part of teaching or encouraging others, Make sure it's consistent with the rest of Scripture. We read, When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God gives thee, and shall possess it, and shall dwell therein, and shall say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are about me. So God, already knowing that this is going to be what the nation will do, and this is something that God himself wanted to do. God had already ordained that there would be a king. It was always God's intention. But he says, when this time comes... He says, Thou shalt in any wise set him a king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shall thou set king over thee, that thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. So it has to be somebody from the nation. And we're told some very clear things here. He shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord has said unto you, you shall uh, henceforth return no more that way, neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away, neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. So this is a very simple rule that's being laid down. The incredible thing is that the wisest man that ever lived on this planet, King Solomon, failed on five counts. This is incredible because Solomon multiplied horses, number one. Solomon allowed people to return to Egypt because that's where they went and got his horses from. And that actually started to build alliances because he also multiplied wives. One of those wives was Pharaoh's daughter. And through those alliances it built up a relationship with Egypt that would cost the nation dearly. In subsequent years, Josiah, one of the kings of Israel, ends up dying at the hands of one of the pharaohs, one of the kings of Egypt. Also, Solomon's heart was turned away by those foreign wives. And he multiplied silver and gold. It's incredible. The, The clear instructions that God gives in his word, even the wisest man on earth fails to do. What does that say about you and I and our chance of keeping these things by our own standard, our own efforts? It doesn't look good, does it? But that's why God gives us his Holy Spirit. Because we can't do the things that God commands us to do. Again, the whole purpose of the law is to show that we're guilty. To confine all under sin, we're told in Scripture. The law is a schoolmaster, a teacher, to lead us to Christ. To bring us to that place where we realize we need a saviour. If Solomon, the wisest man, failed, 
Well, we definitely need a saviour. He carries on, and we're told he shall. So, and it shall be that when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priest, the Levite. So, he's to write a copy of the scriptures. Verse twenty carries on. It says that his heart be not lifted up as above, the, above his brethren. You know, God's word will keep us humble. I think it's interesting that the kings of Israel were commanded to do this, and yet we don't find any record that any of the kings did this. David would seem to be the closest one, because David had such a love for God's word. And clear, we see that through the Psalms. As you look at the history of the kings of Israel, there was not a good king among the whole lot. Every one of them rebelled, went against God. If you were to look at the kings of the the southern kingdom, kings of Judah, there were five kings which God comments as being good, the ones highlighted in green there. But even some of those went astray. King Asa, what a great king of Israel. Reform he brought to the land, getting people back to God's word. And then effectively loses it all because he forgets to trust God. A simple situation. An incredible problem, he trusts God. One he can't solve, but one he thinks he can solve himself, and he goes away from God. And all those kings that we see there, you know, even Hezekiah, great king of Israel, but again stumbles. So, again, the emphasis on the word of God, we need to understand it. It needs to be part of our daily thinking. Chapter 18, we see further provision made for the priests and other laws that are laid down here. We're told in verse 9 there, Thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. There shall be not found among you anyone that makes his son or daughter to pass through the fire, or that uses divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For all all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God does drive them out from before thee. You see, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And things like astrology, star signs, fortune telling, Ouija boards, horoscopes, witches and wizards, and even that which glorifies them, such as Harry Potter and all that kind of stuff, it's still an abomination to God. God has not changed. Deuteronomy 18.15, we're told, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren like unto me, unto him you shall hearken. And of course we see that Jesus was, in many ways, a fulfilment of that prophecy. And Jesus, like Moses, was spared in infancy. We see these incredible types and shadows. Renounced the royal court. Moses renounced the opportunity to serve and to become the next pharaoh in Egypt. And Jesus gave up the majesty and glory of heaven. Both of them had compassion for the people. Both of them made intercession for the people. Both spoke with God face to face. Moses was a mediator of the old covenant. Jesus a mediator of the new covenant. And in a sense, you can argue that they were both the ones who gave the greatest revelation of their respective testaments. So there are a number of similarities. But this verse again, I'll raise up a prophet from among their brethren like unto me. In 
John in the New Testament, John's Gospel, John chapter 1 verse 19 through 21, we read this is the record of John when the Jews sent the priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed, this is John saying, confessed and denied not. He said, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So John wasn't that prophet. He makes it very clear. And they asked him, what then? Art thou Elijah? Because there was a prophecy in Malachi that Elijah would come again. He says, are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. He says, I'm not Christ. I'm not Elijah. And they then ask, are thou that prophet? And the answer is no. Now, it's very easy to skip over that. But we've got three individuals here. We've got Christ, Elijah, and another prophet being referenced. The Pharisees were expecting somebody else. The disciples of John were were curious about these things as well. And actually we do find that there is a yet future role, seemingly, for Moses and that's what it seems to be uh, the illusion here in John chapter 1. That the Christ would come, Elijah would come, but there would be another prophet, just like Moses. And many, as I said, believe that one of those two witnesses that we read about in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, will be Moses. When we get to Revelation, we'll look at some of those things. But then we're told another Simple warning, lesson for us. But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. And if thou say in thine heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken, but the prophet has spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. A number of people today will speak supposedly in God's name. God makes it very clear. You know, if they speak in my name and they're not from me, what they say will not come to pass. Chapter 19, we then get again the cities of refuge. We looked at this last time. There's three on the west side of uh, the River Jordan and three cities on the east side where the, um, somebody who'd committed a, a crime, some act of manslaughter potentially or some other crime, they could flee. If it, was just, um, if it wasn't premeditated, there were these cities of refuge. And we saw how those themselves point to Jesus Christ. He is our refuge. The one fleeing there would be safe, provided they abided in that place, just as we have to abide in Christ. And the time there would be dependent upon when the high priest died. When the high priest died, they were free. And of course, when our high priest died, Jesus Christ, then we also are free. Incredible picture and model. In chapter 20, there's laws regarding war. Um, that are detailed there and in chapter 21 there's further laws and we get this in verse 22 of chapter 1 if a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he be put to death and thou hang him on a tree his body shall not remain all night upon the tree but thou shalt in any ways bury him that day for he that is hanged is accursed of God that the land be not defiled which the Lord thy God gives thee for an inheritance You can prove that Jesus Christ is the Messiah from the Old Testament. 
You can prove that Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh, that he did die on the cross in fulfillment of all of these things. This verse is telling us that if somebody is to be hung on a tree, just like Jesus was hung on a tree, put on a cross and crucified, we're told his body shall not remain all night. Jesus' body did not remain on the cross all night. You know, if Jesus had been crucified at any other time during the week, potentially they could have left the body, or the Romans could have left the body on the cross, but because it was coming to the Jewish Passover and the the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the next day, they had to get the body down off the cross. Again, fulfilling these verses we're looking at. And notice what we're told. For God is saying anybody that hangs on a tree is accursed of God. In 2 Corinthians, in the New Testament, chapter 5, verse 21, we're told of Jesus. For he has made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. He took all of the sin of the whole world. Through chapters 22 to 25, we've got a lot more laws that are laid down uh, for the nation of Israel. Um, When we get to chapter 26, though, there's some interesting things I just want to review quickly here. Let me just read to this year. This is from uh, Chuck Misler. He says, Having delineated the rights and obligations of his people in their divine relationship, Moses instructs the Israelites in the liturgies of two confessions and a reaffirmation of the covenant. Through these confessions, acts of declaration and worship, they are to maintain a continued consciousness of God as their redeemer and sustainer and impart this to each successive generation. The first confession is the offering of the first fruits. So what Chuck is drawing our attention to here is the fact that we're going to see two confessions made on behalf of the nation. So let's have a look at them. First one, Deuteronomy 26, verse 1. It shall be when thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God gives thee for an inheritance, and possesses it and dwells therein, that thou shalt take of the first of all the fruit of the earth which thou shalt bring of the land that the Lord thy God gives thee, and shall put it in a basket, and shall go unto the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. Which is said already, that will be Shiloh. To place his name there. So the first we're going to see is that they're to take the first fruit. But if you think about this, you know, it's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? To labour for the first fruit of the land and then give away the best of your produce. It is against our natural inclinations. But step one of living in the land is to give up the right to yourself. Oswald Chambers Makes this comment. He says, When once we realize that we can never think of anything our Father will forget, worry becomes impossible. Beware of getting into a panic. Panic is bad for the natural heart and is destructive to the spiritual life. Let not your heart be troubled. It is a command. I love that. It's so simple. God will never forget anything. And we're told, verse 3, And thou shalt go unto the priest, and thou shalt be in those days, and shall say unto him, So this is now the first confession they're to make. I profess this day unto the Lord thy God, that I am come 
unto the country which the Lord swore unto our fathers for to give us. And then we're told that the priest shall take the basket out of the hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord thy God. So, they're saying, I stand here by grace. God's the one that's given us this land. I stand here because he is faithful, because he's fulfilled his promises to our fathers. And of course, the confession there marks the beginning of their life in the land. And for us, this is our, or should be our, confession. We stand by grace. And we stand because he is faithful. And for the same, for us, it was for them, for us, this confession marks the beginning of our life in the land, as it were. And will characterize each day in the land. Each day of our lives, we should remember that we stand by grace and we stand because he is faithful. So now we get to the second confession. And thou shalt speak and say before the Lord thy God, and this is to be the confession, a Syrian ready to perish was my father. He went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few and became there a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians evil entreated us and afflicted us and laid upon us hard bondage. And when we cried unto the Lord God of our fathers, the Lord heard our voice and looked upon our affliction and our labor and our oppression. And the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terribleness and with signs and with wonders. And he's brought us into this place and has given us this land, even a land that flowed with milk and honey. And now, behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which thou, thou, O Lord, has given me. So that's to be the confession. And thou shalt set it before the Lord thy God and worship before the Lord thy God. And thou shalt rejoice in the good thing which the Lord thy God has given unto thee and unto thine house thou and the Levite and the stranger that is among you. So this second confession, we're to remember that we were outcasts, not a people, as it were, in bondage. But then, I was delivered, given an inheritance I didn't deserve, provided for in the land of blessing. Therefore, I will praise him and offer my first fruits. That is a summary of this confession that the nation was to give. And what better summary of our confession? That we were outcasts. We were not a people. We were in bondage to sin. But then, because he is faithful, I was delivered. Given an inheritance I did not deserve. Provided for in the land of blessing. Therefore, because of these things, I will praise him and offer my first fruits. If time allowed, we would read Ephesians chapter 2 right now. So please take it away. That's your homework for this morning. Read Ephesians chapter 2. Because that is another great summary in the New Testament of exactly what we're looking at there. That we were not a people. We were strangers to the covenants and promises. We were dead in trespasses and sins. But God... God is faithful. And just as he's promising Israel here, so with us. You see in the Old Testament how, although these things were historical events, things that really took place, they're all foreshadowing something bigger, something that God would later do through Jesus, through the church. 
This, just as you build a, a small scale model before you're going to build a building. So God has done that through his word. The Old Testament is replete with these models looking forward that find their fulfillment in Jesus. Verse, uh, chapter 26, verse 16. This day the Lord thy God has commanded thee to do these statutes and judgments. So again, the civil laws, the religious laws. That thou shalt therefore keep and do them with all thine heart and with all thy soul. And then we're told here, look, verse 17. Thou hast avouched the Lord this day to be thy God and to walk in his ways and to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and to hearken unto his voice. And the Lord has avouched you this day to be his peculiar people, as he has promised thee that thou should keep all his commandments and to make thee high above all nations, which he has made in praise and in name and in honour, that thou may be a holy people unto the Lord thy God as he has spoken. So the agreement, quite simply here, the expectations have been set, the requirements laid out. Both parties know their obligations. They've vouched to walk in his ways and keep his statutes. God has vouched to provide, protect and lift up the nation of Israel. And now it's time, in chapter 27, to agree the contract. And then chapter 28, we see the penalties, if you like the small print, for breach of the contract. So that leads us now on to chapter 27, this next or third and final sermon that Moses gives. So let's just quickly have a, a quick look. Verse 1 and 2 we read, Moses with the elders of Israel commanded the people saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you this day. And it shall be on the day that when you shall pass over the Jordan unto the land which the Lord thy God gives thee, that that shall set thee up great stones and plaster them with plaster. Now this is that which we've already mentioned. This, this, uh, these stones are going to be on uh, one of these mountains that we looked at earlier. And they're to recite these blessings and curses and agree this covenant, if you like, before the Lord there. And thou shalt write upon them all the words of this law when thou art passed over, that thou may go in unto the land which the Lord thy God gives thee, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord God of thy fathers has promised thee. When we look next week in the book of Joshua, we'll see how these things are played out there. And we just read at the end of 27, Cursed be he that confirms not all the words of this law to do them. And all the people shall say, Amen. So that's all about the law and everything, being what they're going to confess and agree when they get into the land on the first day they've crossed over the Jordan. And then chapter 28 of Deuteronomy. One of the most amazing chapters in the entire Bible. Barnes in his commentary says this, A comparison of this chapter with Exodus 23 20 to 23 and Leviticus 26 will show how Moses here resumes and amplifies the promises and threats already set forth in earlier records of their law. The language rises in this chapter to the sublimest strains, especially in the latter part of it, and the prophecies respecting the dispersion and degradation of the Jewish nation in its latter days are among the most remarkable in Scripture. They are plain precise and circumstantial and the fulfillment of them has been literal complete and undeniable this is a chapter you need to make note of the amazing thing is we have 14 verses 
about the blessings that come from obedience. And then we have the rest of this long chapter dealing with the curses. Why such a disproportionate ratio there? Well, because the real emphasis needs to be placed upon when we don't do. The blessings are very clear. It shall come to pass, it shall hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and to do all his commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. And as you read through those blessings, and I'll let you do that in your own time. For the sake of time, we won't read through all those blessings now. But as you do so, you realize that is the life we want to live. Israel would promise these blessings in every area of their lives. But then we get to verse 15, and now we have the curses for disobedience. Let me give you a quick summary. So, We're going to see here an incredible prophetic model laid out in this chapter. And as the rebellion of the nation increases, so the curses and the intensity increases. There's, from verse 15 through to verse 24, there's general curses given for when they're in the land. But then, from verse 25 to 35, they're warned of defeats and plunder. The things that would come upon the nation if they didn't obey. That's the times of the judges. But then they're warned about being taken away into captivity if still they didn't obey. Verse 36 to 47. And that details the time of the monarchy. And of course we know that in the kingdom era of Israel, that came to an abrupt end both for the northern kingdom that were taken captive by Assyria and the southern kingdom taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon. And then we get from verse 48 to 61, this yoke of iron, a siege we will read in just a moment. That speaks of the Roman occupation. And then remarkably, we'll look at it in just a moment, from verse 62 to 68, we're told about their life even hanging in doubt itself. This dispersion among the nations, even referencing in type, we'll see in a moment, the Holocaust. The entire future of Israel laid out here. And then we look in the closing stages of that, of the repentance and regathering. Galatians 6 makes it very clear. It says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. It's just like the law of gravity. It's a spiritual law. You can't change it. In Exodus 20 verse 7, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Well, Israel were taking God's name. They were to be his covenant people. They were taking his name. But because they took it in vain, because they didn't represent God faithfully to the nations of the world, we're told, just as it says here, God will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. It's an issue of ambassadorship. So let's just have a quick look. We're not going to read through every single verse. We won't be able to. But verse 15 we pick up and it says, But it shall come to pass if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes which I command thee this day, that, thou, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Cursed shall thou be in the city, and cursed shall thou be in the field, and cursed shall be thy basket and thy store. Cursed shall be the fruit of thy body, and the fruit of thy land, the increase of thy kind, and the flocks of thy sheep. 
Cursed shall thou be when thou comest in, and cursed shall thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall send upon uh, the cursing, vexation, and rebuke in all that thou settest thine hand unto, for to do, unto, until thou be destroyed, and until thou perish quickly, because of the wickedness of thy doings, whereby thou hast forsaken me. The Lord shall make the pestilence cleave unto thee, until he's consumed thee from off the land where thou go to possess it. And then we're told, verse 33, The fruit of thy land and all thy labours shall a nation which thou knowest not eat up, and thou shalt be only oppressed and crushed alway. Okay, this is incredible because exactly what happens during the time of the judges. The nations they didn't know were coming in and taking their produce, taking their land. Why was Gideon hiding? Because he knew that the Midianites were coming and taking away the produce of the land. And we see it through the entire time of Judges. Just as God said would happen, so it happened. Verse 36 says, The Lord shall bring thee and thy king, which thou set over thee, unto a nation which neither thou nor thy fathers have known. And there shalt thou serve other gods, wood and stone. And thou shalt become an astonishment, a proverb, a byword, among all nations, whether the Lord shall lead thee. Thou shalt be its sons and daughters, but thou shalt not enjoy them, for they shall go into captivity. What an incredible prophecy this is, because this exactly happened to the detail. But because Israel disobeyed God, they were an astonishment to the nations. And they were led into captivity. The Babylonian captivity speaks of this. It's interesting that you look at the way that people view Israel around the world. And people understand, many people understand certainly, that it's because of their rebelliousness that they were cast out of their land by God. Certainly, and I have a number of Muslim friends uh, that I work with in London, they understand that Israel have been cast out of their land because of their disobedience. What they haven't understood is what we're going to go and look at in just a moment. By the way, these prophecies were over 800 years before the event. Verse 48 says, Therefore shalt thou serve thine enemies, which the Lord shall send against thee in hunger, and in thirst, and in nakedness, and all want of, uh, of all things. And he shall put a yoke of iron upon thy neck until he has destroyed thee. Well, that speaks very much of imperial Rome. Daniel chapter 2 verse 40 speaks of Rome as being this iron, these legs of iron. And this yoke that was placed around Israel's neck by Rome was crushing. The Lord shall bring a nation against thee from the far, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which shall not regard the person of the old, nor show favour to the young. In AD 70, we know that this siege against Israel, against Jerusalem, was finally over as Rome came in and destroyed the city, the temple, and everything else. The standard of Rome was this eagle, just as is being prophesied here. And we're told, And he shall besiege thee in all thy gates, until thy high and fence walls come down, wherein thou trusted, throughout all thy land. And he shall besiege thee in all thy gates, throughout all the land which the Lord thy God has given thee. And thou shalt eat the fruit of thine own body, 
the flesh of thy sons and of thy daughters, which the Lord thy God has given thee, in the siege and in the straightness, wherewith thine enemies shall distress thee. Anybody remember in history learning about Masada? These Jews that were in this high place. Just look at the verse we just read again. He shall besiege thee in all thy gates until thy high and fence walls come down. What an incredible siege this was when the Romans finally got to the top. There was just one woman and one child left. All the rest of the Jews that were there had killed themselves because they didn't want to be taken captive by Rome. Interestingly, the IDF, the Israeli Defence Force, they're swearing in ceremony. They do this by torchlight. They march up to Masada and they declare, Masada will never fall again. This has so impacted their, their minds and their thinking. This terrible event that took place there. And then we carry on. So that the man that is tender among you and very delicate, his eyes shall be evil toward his brother and toward the wife of his bosom. This is just, again, just talking about these sieges, these things that would take place. Verse 58 we pick up, it says, If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God. You see, they had this privilege that God was saying, you will be my people. But there's a condition. These are the rules. And if you break them, well, let's just carry on. Verse 63, it shall come to pass that the Lord, that as the Lord rejoiced over you to do good and to multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to naught. And you shall be plucked from off the land whither thou goest to possess it. And again, that is the understanding that Islam have of Israel. That because they broke God's laws, they were plucked from off the land. And this is why, if you look on any Arab map today, Israel will not feature. They don't exist on an Arab map. They don't recognize the right to exist in the land for Israel. Because they understand, by always correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think you'll agree with this. This is the understanding of Islam. That they don't believe that Israel have any right to the land because they forfeited the covenant they had with God. In Leviticus 26, if you remember, we mentioned there, four times we have this prophecy, this promise, that if they wouldn't obey God, after all the judgments that God had brought on them, that they'd be chastised seven times further. Now we're going to wait till we get to Ezekiel before we see the incredible fulfilment of that. But let me tell you in advance that to the very year, and I can actually prove within two days, and there's some difficulties with the chronology, I believe we can actually get it to the day that in 1948, when Israel became a nation again, it was the exact time as prophesied by a combination of these prophecies. And in 1967, when Israel recaptured Jerusalem, it was the exact day as prophesied. Leviticus, we saw this previously, that God had promised there, again, for not obeying, that they would be scattered amongst the heathen. Well, let's now look at what I would refer to as the international history of Israel. Deuteronomy 28, verses 64 to 68. This is one of the most remarkable set of verses in the entire Bible. 64 starts and says... And the Lord shall scatter thee among all people. Has that happened? Yes. 
from one end of earth even unto the other. Has that happened? Yes. And there thou shalt serve other gods, which neither thou nor thy fathers have known, even wood and stone. What gods do Israel serve today? What are Israel famous for? Banking, particularly. They're serving the work of men's hands, the work that we do, the produce. It's all about finance and money. Israel has become very, the Jews have become very prosperous. And they're serving other gods. They've forgotten the gods of their fathers. And notice what we're told, verse 65. And among these nations shall thou find no ease, neither shall the sole of thy foot have rest. Isn't that true? Hasn't that happened in history? But the Lord shall give thee there a trembling heart, and a failing of eyes, and sorrow of mind. Remember when this was written. This is written somewhere around 1500 years B.C., before Jesus came. So we're talking about three and a half thousand years ago this was written down. And it's telling us of exactly what's happened to the nation of Israel. And thy life shall hang in doubt before thee, and thou shalt fear day and night, and shall have none assurance of thy life. In the morning thou shalt say, Would God it were even. And even thou shalt say, Would God, would God it were morning. For the fear of thine heart wherewith thou shalt fear, and for the sight of thine eyes which thou shalt see. And we know that that's true. So many horrible images of the Holocaust we could go through. Just a few to remind ourselves that just as it was recorded here in the book of Deuteronomy, so it happened to the nation of Israel. And yet, they remained an identifiable national group of people. One of the most heart-wrenching scenes, images, situations, if you go to Yad Vashem, to the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, there's a glass floor. And as you can see in the picture there, it's full of shoes. What really hits home is that most of them are children's shoes. That's a picture of this place. There's a number of scriptures they've got around the the building from Ezekiel there. I will put my breath into you and you shall live again. And I will set you upon your own soil. From Joel, uh, Joel chapter 1, it says, Has the like of this happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it and let your children tell theirs and their children the next generation. But this is the part that Islam hasn't understood. This is the part that an awful lot of the Christian church has not understood. That's not the end of the story. Yes, Israel were disobedient. Yes, they were cast out around the world, around the nations, and they were judged because of their disobedience, for breaking this incredibly privileged covenant they they set up with God. Hosea chapter 3 verse 4 tells, tells us there, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, without a sacrifice, without an image, without an ephod, without a teraphim. Afterward, Shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. 
In Hosea 5.15, we read of a time of affliction that Israel will experience. This is yet to happen. This will be the time of the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek me. In their affliction, they will seek me early. Another scripture I'll let you read. Your leisure is from Romans chapter 11. And we're told there of the blessing for us. Because Israel disobeyed, the gospel has gone out to the whole world. All of us can be grafted in now. But we are reminded to be not high-minded but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he spare not thee also. But this, as I say, is not the end of the story. In Deuteronomy 29 we read, These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, beside the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. There, keep therefore the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. And then men shall say, and isn't this what is said? Then men shall say, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt, for they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they knew not and whom he had not given unto them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against his land to bring upon all the curses that are written in his book. That is what is said today of Israel. And the Lord rooted them out of their land in anger and in wrath and in great indignation and cast them into another land as it is this day. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but to those Things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Now let's look at the conclusion of this issue, because in Deuteronomy 30 we read, verse 1, And it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee. God knew this was going to happen. When they come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among the nations where the Lord thy God has driven thee, and shall return unto the Lord thy God, and shall obey his voice to do all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thy heart and with all thy soul. That then. So when those things happen, and Israel are in his predicament, and they cry out to God, that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity, and have compassion upon thee, and will return and gather thee from all nations, whither the Lord thy God has scattered thee. Verse 4 says, If any of thine be driven out unto the utmost parts of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed. And thou shalt possess it, and he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. This is such a clear promise of God. That if in their predicament Israel cry out to God, he will hear and will bring them back to the land of Israel, to the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That closes that third sermon of Moses. 
There are so many scriptures we could reference, and I'm not going to read these now. I'm leaving them in the slides because I know many of you get these slides, you download them, and you can read through them in your own. Scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture that promise that God will bring the nation back. So many. Let's just move through these because I encourage you, to go through all of these scriptures. In fact, there's so many. I'm going to have to... What amazes me, and I said this last week, is that a large proportion of the church today denies that God will bring Israel back to the land. They deny that Israel have any yet future purpose. And yet so much of the Old Testament, and there are many scriptures you can read through there, make it abundantly clear that that is God's plan for the nation. So, let's just round off the book now. Moses went and spoke all these words unto Israel, and he said unto them, I'm 120 years old this day, I can no more go out and come in. Also the Lord has said unto me, Thou shalt not go over this Jordan. So God has said to Moses, You can see the land, but you can't go in. The Lord thy God, he will go over before thee, he will destroy these nations from before thee, and thou shalt possess them. And now notice who's appointed here. And Joshua... He shall go over before thee as the Lord has said. Okay. So now God is publicly saying that he's going to give them this victory, but Joshua is now going to be the one that will lead the nation. Moses, we're told, wrote this law, delivered it to the priests, and so on. They put it into the ark. And he gave Joshua, the son of Nun, a charge, and said, Be strong and be of good courage. For thou shalt bring the children of Israel into the land which I swore unto them, and I will be with them. In 32, we read this. Give ear, O you heavens, I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass, because I will publish the name of the Lord. Ascribe you greatness unto our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Another little bit of homework for you. In Deuteronomy 32, when you get a moment, go through and note how many times you find the rock being referenced there. And Paul tells us that that rock is Christ. Time and time again through that chapter, you find that God is referenced as their rock. And Paul tells us that that rock is Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy 29 just talks about the dividing of the nations. And it says the dividing of the nations will be as the number of the children of Israel. In Genesis 46, we find that number was 70. 70 souls went down into Egypt. And the descendants of Noah that made up all the nations of the earth, total 70. Just as we read there in Deuteronomy, this prophecy fulfilled. Notice also in 32, we read chapter 32, verse 21. They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They provoke me to anger with their vanities, and I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Well, that's you and I, folks. We're the foolish nation. In First Peter, we read, But you, 
This is you and I this morning. Are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvellous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. In Romans 11.11, we're told there, I say that have they stumbled, this is Israel, have they stumbled, they should fall. God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation is come to the Gentiles, to you and I, to provoke Israel to jealousy. Verse 19 says, but did I, uh, sorry, but I say, did not Israel know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. Just the fulfillment of what we're seeing here. Moses is then given instruction in Deuteronomy 32, 48 to go up to this mountain and the Lord is going to take him home. His ministry is complete. And he's told he's not allowed to go in because of this situation where he didn't follow, didn't obediently follow God. You know, we talk about success so often. Success presupposes varied outcomes. But for us, we're the object of the exercise. God is working in our lives for his purposes. It's not about success, it's about obedience. Deuteronomy 33 verse 1 says, And this is the blessing wherewith Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And through the chapter, we see that God now, through Moses, speaks prophetically to the tribes of Israel, with the exception of Simeon, they're omitted. Again, we always have a list of 12, and we have an alphabet of 13, as it were, to choose from with the tribes of Israel. And the blessing is given to each of them. And at the end of that chapter, one of the verses I love so much in Scripture, the eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And in the final chapter of the book, Moses goes up to the top of this mountain, And he sees there, we're told, the Lord showed him all the land. And he looks across. And what he would have seen as he looked out is something in that region, the mountain where he was standing here on the coast of the Dead Sea. And he would have been able to see somewhere in that region. If it had been a clear day, and no doubt God would have arranged it such. That's a view from that point. And you can see off into the distance the land that God had promised the nation. And the land that God has already restore them too partially and Isaiah 11 tells us that there will be another fulfillment of that prophecy when Jesus comes back to set up his throne his kingdom he'll bring the Jews from the ends of the earth and bring them back to their land next week we're going to move into the book of Joshua and we'll see some of these things being fulfilled there let's bow our hearts Father we thank you for your word. Lord, it is breathtaking as we see these promises and prophecies. And Father, we know, just as that covenant that you were calling Israel to swear before you, that Lord, we stand purely by your grace, because you are faithful. And Lord, we thank you that it's not about us or our ability. We thank you, Lord, that you're a God who delights in keeping your promises. And we thank you, Lord, that we can rest in the knowledge that we have our eternity secure in Jesus Christ. Lord, we just thank you for these things. Keep us growing in knowledge and understanding of your word. 
But Lord, we pray you help us to apply that which we already know, that we may live lives to your glory as your ambassadors in this privileged calling we have. In Jesus' name, amen.